This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of November 21st, 2022. It is the end of the Tournament of Champions finals. And it is Thanksgiving. And Emily, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Uh, We had a nice Thanksgiving. We hosted the way that I like to host is that we order a bunch of catering things so that then I can focus on a couple particular things that I want to cook instead of trying to cook everything. Mm. So I roasted a turkey. My turkey opinions are, first of all, you need like a really good turkey to start with. If you don't have a really good turkey, you're not going to be able to salvage that. Mm -hmm. Dry brine and... Roast it mm. in parchment. Hmm, interesting. Now, when you say parchment, do you mean parchment paper? Or do you mean like literal vellum? Oh no, parchment paper, like the okay. like the baking I parchment. Make sure. You can, yeah. I don't know. Maybe you wrap it in sheepskin. I don't. Yeah, know. no, like that parchment. Like you can use, um, and I did have to use actually, like the parchment on a roll that you can mm-hmm. use for like you know lining baking sheets or whatever. You like wrap your like roasting pan or your turkey in it. But if you're ahead of the game. You can buy like a huge parchment bag that the turkey can go inside. By the time I got to where the parchment bags are sold, they were only selling the the small ones that are like appropriate for like up to a 10 pound turkey. Mm-hmm. And our turkey was bigger than that. Those are my turkey opinions. Feel free to tweet your, your turkey opinions at me. But if they don't align with mine, they're incorrect. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) I also made a really great um, pumpkin caramel pie from a recipe from Milk Bar. Hmm. Anyway, I'm sorry. This is is not (laughs) a cooking podcast. This is a Jeopardy podcast. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing uh, just fine. Our Thanksgiving was nice. Yeah. Nice. It It was filled with joy and a little bit of tears from the children, Mm -hmm. but that's okay. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how you know it was good. That checks out. That yeah. sounds that sounds pretty normal. I tried to yep. head off the tears by putting craft macaroni and cheese on the table, but like, you know, kids will always find something. Oh yeah. Although ours weren't upset about the food. It was more like yeah. when they were playing. But. Right. Yes. That's the thing. You can control what you can control, but Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a big day with a lot going on and mm-hmm. it gets built up. And so tears happen. Yep. Yeah. But Jeopardy also happened this week. And so we need to finish up the Tournament of Champions. So we get to Monday, November 21st, game six of the finals, where we have Sam Buttry, still an associate professor of operations research at the Naval Postgraduate School from Pacific Grove, California. Andrew He, who is still a software developer from San Francisco, California, and Amy Schneider, who is still a writer from Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. We get the Jeopardy round categories. Welcome to the new millennium. Sports, abbreviated jobs, gestures, writers and their works, and numerical terms. Mm-hmm. I was pulling for Sam because I pull for 
the longest series possible. Mm-hmm. Right? We were we were at a point where if Amy or Andrew won, that would end the tournament there. That is true. I was also pulling for Sam. Yeah. That's not a commentary on who I wanted to win the tournament overall. I'm not I'm not sure I had a a strong opinion one way, like one way or another. Yeah, you know, I don't know that I did either. I really liked all three of the finalists and I thought they were all capable. I I wouldn't if any of them mm-hmm. if any of them had won, I wouldn't have felt like, "Oh, well they got lucky," you know. Yeah. I was just enjoying watching them play and I wanted yeah. to see them go for another game. So, yeah. had to blowing for Sam in this one. Yep. Yeah. I thought Sam missed an opportunity though in the in the uh, $400 level of gestures. They showed mm. a, a picture of a hand and it said here's the ASL sign for this three-word phrase and it's the thumb and pointer finger and pinky out. And mm-hmm. uh he said what's I love you and I really thought he could have had a tender moment with Ken there but he chose not to. Yeah. It's a shame. <laughs> uh Geraldine Brooks's march Yes, at the $200 of writers and their works. You have talked about that more than once. I have. Um, Geraldine Brooks, I think, is my favorite author. Yeah. uh, If you haven't read anything by Geraldine Brooks, check out some of her work. People of the Book maybe is my favorite of her things. But March is great. March won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Mm -hmm. And it is highly literary, really beautifully written, Little Women fanfic. So So everything you love. Just yeah, all about it. and like the the writing chops you need to have to win like a major literary award with a book inspired by Little Women, right? Like mm-hmm. it's mm, you, it's a it's a yeah. You got to thread that needle real yeah. good. Yeah, it's a power move. It's, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> she's really great. Amy seemed to enjoy getting fifty four forty or fight, mm-hmm. which I couldn't quite bring that phrase to mind, but but she had it. Yeah. That's when I always forget. I'm always like, isn't the 39th parallel important? Wait, where does this go? What number is it? Ah, uh, I can never yeah. remember exactly what the yeah what the number is. I did have a bit of an issue with not the clue in, like, in that it's wrong, but really more that it just like seemed too easy. The $800 level in gestures was at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists, each wearing one of a pair of these. It's like... I mean, I'm going to guess everybody knows that one, but mm-hmm. is that an $800 clue? And also like, they raise their fists wearing be? one of a pair of what? Handcuffs? Mittens. Like, what do you, like, yeah, I, what do you, I mean, they were each wearing one of a pair of earmuffs mm-hmm. and that didn't have anything to do with their fists, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, what, what is it going to be? That yeah. to me was uh-huh. too much, Bracelets. too much deep. Yeah. yeah. Friendship bracelets. <laughs> too much detail. Too much explanation for yeah uh-huh a jeopardy clue heck even at like a 200 that'd be a 200 dollar clue to me yeah so daily double number one is at the 800 dollar level of that writers and their works category that we were talking about a minute ago and sam finds it at the 10th pick he has 2600 and makes it a true daily double he is trying to catch up with andrew who's at 4200 uh amy's behind him at 800 He gets the clue, left unfinished at his death, Juneteenth, his second novel, was published in 1999. Sam tried who is Baldwin, but Ralph Ellison is what they were looking for here. Yeah, I guess that is a thing to know. I did not know that Ralph Ellison only wrote one novel. Yeah. During his life. I didn't actually know this one either. 
once I heard the correct response, I thought maybe I've heard of that, but it would never have come to me. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Amy's at 6,400, Andrew's at 5,800, Sam is at 1,400. And the double Jeopardy categories are bodies of water, films by tagline, let's do the math. PJs, that's in quotation marks, so Pendulette would be an example. Hegel and with cream cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And they had, so the Jeopardy round had numerical terms. The double Jeopardy round had do the math, but no no Roman Roman numeral math. No Roman numeral math. I'm so sad about it. You had over three weeks, guys. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it'll make it all the sweeter next time we see it, but really it's just a, just a letdown. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. That was a bummer. I am probably showing my religion major here, but like putting dialectic at the $2,000 level of Hegel just felt wrong to me. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps that and the opera question should have been switched since that opera question was not about Hegel at all. I mean, a lot of these were like just barely about Hegel, right? Like sure, I think that's sure, that's, that's the fair, thing that's here, fair. right? Like if yeah. you if you know one thing about Hegel, it's the Hegelian dialectic. And if you know zero things about Hegel, you can get questions. You can the, get the other ones, yeah. The other four clues, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I felt for Sam at the $1,600 level of with cream cheese. Um, as cream cheese goes into cheesecake, so cheesecake goes into this pan named for the clamp on it. Sam tried, what is a spring? It, he said, is it a spring? What is a spring plate? Spring pan. Yeah. And he was close, but not close enough. Uh, Andrew got the rebound. It's a spring form pan. Mm-hmm. Clearly knew what he was talking about. But. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andrew had a tough uh, incomplete answer, I guess, in the PJ's category at the $1,600 level. In 1979, this architect famous for his glass house in Connecticut was the first recipient of the Pritzker Prize. And he said, who is Johnson? And Ken mm. gave him some time and then ruled him incorrect because you needed to, for the category, give the P and the J. PJ, right. yeah. It's Philip Johnson, mm-hmm. which I know from the kid's book, Baby's First Eames. <laughs> it's a good book. that's great uh daily double number two is actually the first pick in the round it's in the bodies of water uh category so sam uh finds it and it's at the 1200 dollars level he is at 1400 so he wagers 2000 and he gets the clue the Komendorsky islands are part of a 1200 mile arc separating this sea from the pacific ocean to the south and he gets it correct with what is the bering sea Mm-hmm. And after the ninth clue, it's Sam's pick again. And he starts to ask for the next clue in bodies of water and then stops himself. I presume because he remembers that the first daily double of the round was there. And so he's not going to find the second one there. Mm-hmm. And so he needs to use that pick to try and find that daily double. Uh, which he does. I thought that was a good a good strategy moment. Um, right. So it's at the sixteen hundred dollar level of films by tagline. Sam at this point is at seven thousand, uh, just a thousand behind Amy. He's got Andrew right behind him at sixty two hundred, so eight hundred dollars behind him. He wagers three thousand, so um, looking to take the lead, but I think it's a small enough wager that he kind of stays in the mix, or you know, can get back in there um, if he misses it. 
Uh, he gets the clue. 2021, every family has its own language. And he gets it correct. It's Coda, which I watched like last week and I thought it was good. Yeah. I mean, it was up for best picture, right? Yeah. Have you it seen it, be- Kyle? Uh, I've, I have seen part of it. Yeah. There's a music teacher character who I was mm-hmm. not. I think that character uh, didn't especially ring true for me. So I mm-hmm. sort of wondered what you thought about that. Uh, if you if you'd seen it, but yeah, yeah, I yeah. tend to view music teachers in in popular media as not. I don't know. I tend to get frustrated ever since uh, 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 Mr. Holland's opus. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's fair. M- Mr. Holland's opus that came out when you were ever since I saw it. Don't don't give me don't no nah, don't start <laughs> don't start with me. Um. Uh, yeah, but I liked it. I liked the film overall. Sure. Uh, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Amy is in the lead at 15,600. Andrew is right behind at 14,200. And Sam had a rough, rough turn there later on. So he's only at 8,000. Mm-hmm. Um, they get the final jeopardy category plays and the clue, the January 12th, 1864 Washington evening star reported on a performance of this dashing comedy to a full and delighted house. Uh, Sam writes, what is our mutual friend? Uh, And that is incorrect. And he wagered Mm -hmm. all 8,000. Yeah. Our mutual friend is a novel by Charles Dickens. Um, Mm -hmm. So I know how the phrase got into his head. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would yeah. it would be that yeah it's something to to know yeah um, Andrew got it correct with what is our American cousin and wagered twenty eight oh one but Amy also got it correct with what is our American cousin and wagered thirteen thousand which was a cover bet and that means that Amy Schneider is the twenty twenty two tournament of champions winner mm-hmm. yeah and I mean much as I wanted the tournament to go on I'm I'm just thrilled for Amy and she played a great tournament and Mm -hmm. it's very well deserved. Yes. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So on Tuesday, uh, November 22, Chris Panulo is back. Yay. Yay. Our contestants are Etienne Lapine, a software engineer from Lafayette, Colorado, David Stiasny, a pediatrician from Highland Park, Illinois, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, who has won 11 games. Uh, and yeah. has a total of $356,702. And the Jeopardy round categories are health and medicine, soccer's World Cup in the 21st century, rhyming phrases, who lives in a pineapple, and under the sea. Uh, see in quotation marks. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, World Cup. Emily, have you been following the World Cup? Do you care about the World Cup? I don't understand soccer enough to really understand what's going on much with the world cup. I have been in the room when world cup matches have been on. Um, Why don't you tell us about the world cup, Kyle? I would love to. (laughs) Uh, I mean, really, I'm just excited uh, because I, I just love the world cup. I, I think I've talked about how I enjoy things where I can like root for the United States without feeling like, I don't know. Yeah. Like a bad person necessarily. (laughs) I don't know. So like, so like the World Cup and the Olympics and those kinds of things. Basically, yeah. Like I can, yeah. Uh, so I, I really enjoy it. Um, United States is doing pr- pretty well, playing surprisingly well, considering uh, we didn't even make the World Cup last time around. Mm, so yeah. uh, I'm I'm just 
really enjoying it. There are lots of upsets. Like, what was it? Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. Oh my hmm. gosh. Unbelievable. Just a lot of stuff like that. Japan yeah. beat Germany. Japan what? beat Germany. Huh. Unbelievable. It's it's been very exciting. Not no absolutely no commentary coming from me about Qatar or Qatar as I just I every time I pronounce it like that, the people that I'm talking to are like, what? I'm like Qatar. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> but I'm pretty I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Qatar. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, Qatar, I think. And and I've heard that like actually like Qatar is still like an approximation because we don't really have those the, like, like ha, ha. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, anyway. I love the World Cup, and I'm very excited that it is going on. I went to a watch party for the USA-England match, which was a 0-0 draw, but it was a very exciting game, and the U.S. played mm. very well. Nice. Anyway, I loved the World Cup category. Yeah, it was a good category. I saw a uh, Hank Green TikTok recently about uh, the like the linguistic phenomenon, which apparently is called mincing, where people create like substitutions for profanity to kind of, you know, make it more acceptable for various settings. So um, mm-hmm. that came to mind when we had the $400 level of rhyming phrases, this exclamation would literally be the male child of a firearm, son of a gun mm-hmm. uh, is what they were looking for then there. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I assume that that's a, an instance of, of mincing. Um, sure. Seems like. Yeah. It. Yeah. Ken tells us that pineapple on pizza is delicious. So that's settled. And he's correct. He is correct. It is sweet and acidic and it it counters so many of the other flavors of the pizza. It just works so mm-hmm. well. It works really well. It does. I agree. Mm-hmm. Here's where we get all of the Twitter engagement though. Yeah. So Daily Double number one is in the Who Lives In category at the $1,000 level. Uh, pick number 17 and David finds it. He's at 5,400. Chris is at 7,400. Uh, Etienne is still at zero and he wagers 2,600. He gets the clue. This European city, Bosco Ntaganda, con- convicted of 18 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And he guesses what is Belgrade, but that's the Hague where the mm. ICC is. Yeah, I couldn't kind of figure out how to tackle that one. I I just the the only thing I could think was like, well, war crimes and crimes against humanity seems like the Hague. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is in the lead at eighty eight hundred. David is at forty four hundred, and Etienne is at twelve hundred. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. That was quite a year. Stories of the South. RSVP to my political party. Buildings. Batman villains and vocabulary words. The responses are all made up entirely of letters in the word vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We were watching this one as a family and the consensus was that that was quite a year was a very challenging category. Yeah. I felt like there was one in each of the clues. There was one that was a good pointer and mm-hmm. the others were like, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe that's that year, you know? Yeah. The 200 or the 400 was Trotsky is sent trotting from the Soviet Union. The Dow loses half its value within weeks. Say hello to a farewell to arms. I would rather say goodbye to a farewell to arms. That's yeah. 1929, which really only because of the stock market, right? Right. Like, yeah. And for some of them, 
like there was the one solid pointer where I thought that I knew where it was pointing me. And then the, like the others would like make me doubt myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a tricky one. Uh, there was a consensus among everyone else in my family that the Batman villains category was just unbelievably easy. I guess I don't know my bat- Batman villains all that well. I knew some of them, but well, even so, I mean like the, like the $2,000 clue obsessed with Alice in Wonderland and a master of mind control. Jervis Tetch goes by this alias. Even if you don't know that there's a Batman villain who calls himself the Mad Hatter, if you're just going to be like, well, what's an Alice in Wonderland character that seems like that could fit that, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I yeah. thought the Batman, if yeah, I thought that was pretty easy, but that's just me, I guess. And yeah. other people in your family. So mm-hmm. is it because your, uh, your kids have played all of the, uh, the um, Arkham Asylum and Arkham Knight video games? They have, they have not. <laughs> I, I was kidding. Those, <laughs> those are not for kids. Yeah. Maybe it's like Lego Batman tie-ins or something. Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. It could, could be it. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two is in RSVP to my political party at the $800 level, and Etienne finds it as the fifth pick. She makes it a true Daily Double with $2,400. She's uh, trailing um, with Chris way up at $12,000, but David's ahead of her at exactly twice her score, so she's looking to tie for second at this point, and there's there's still a lot of game left. Her clue is, my name is Alexander Hamilton, and I helped form this party in the early 1790s. And she gets it correct. It's the Federalists. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in That Was Quite a Year at the $1,600 level. Chris finds it at pick number 14. He has now gotten himself out to an even bigger lead. He's at 17200 uh, Etienne's at 7600 David's at 4800 New Wager's 5000 Gets the clue. King John okays the Magna Carta. King John appeals to the Pope against the Magna Carta. King John has a year let to, left to live. And he gets that correct with what is 1215. Mm-hmm. 1215. Which I always remember because now you can tell me if I actually have my have my year wrong. I think I do. For some reason, like I, I have to like go through multiple steps now. I learned that the 95 theses was in 1512. Hmm. But I have since learned that it's 1517. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know who taught me that it was 1512. I'm pretty sure I learned that in like my European history class, which I'm, oh, no. not, I'm not happy about. Yeah. But I, re- I learned those two things that like, okay, Magna Carta was 1215, 95 theses was 1512. But now I have the caveat, like the asterisk on it, that's except actually the 95 theses. <laughs> 1517 <laughs> but i can't I, I i'll never get rid of that association so now i have to just have like a, an additional clause added to it yeah uh yeah i don't know when or how i learned 1215 but that one that one i had mm-hmm. yeah so at the end of the double jeopardy round uh chris has a lock game with twenty nine thousand four hundred. uh david's at ten thousand four hundred, uh which is a good score uh mm-hmm. Etienne's at 8,400, which also is a good score. And the final Jeopardy category is musical theater. The clue is the pair at the center of tumult in this long running show were originally to be a Jewish girl and a Catholic boy. Etienne got it correct with what is West Side Story. Uh, She wagered everything. Uh, So that brings her up to 16,800. David tried what is Fiddler on the Roof. 
I think he's focusing in on Jewish girl and, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to come up with a musical about, you know, a Jewish girl. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Which, you know, fair enough, but that's, that's, uh, if you know a little more about the plot of Fiddler on the Roof, that doesn't that's quite just fit. That's just one, that's just one of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, he's wagered 6401, so he'll drop down to 39.99. And Chris wrote, what, Tony and Tina's wedding? Is that? Your guess is as good as mine. Huh. An environmental slash immersive theater event based on a traditional Italian-American wedding and reception. Since opening Hmm. on Valentine's Day 1988 in New York City, the piece has been staged in over 100 locations worldwide. Okay, so today I learned. (laughs) That's um, a real thing. (laughs) That's a real thing. Yeah, how about that? (laughs) Yeah, so it is a real thing. It's not the real thing they were looking for. But Chris had a lot game. He wagered 52-21, uh, dropping him down to 24,179, which is still more than enough for the win. Yes, he had it locked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on Wednesday, we have the contestants John Dorsey, a loan operations specialist from Potomac, Maryland. Katie Rudolphy, a civil servant from Grand Prairie, Texas. And Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, whose 12-day total is now 380881 Dollars. We have the Jeopardy on categories a 20th century facts production, arrondissements of Paris, a loud category, a matter of degrees, shared last names, and lose a letter. Mm-hmm. I am not good at shared last names, I think. Somehow, like, I just struggled with all, mm, almost all of them. Mm. Yeah, for me on that one, the fact that they had. Uh, musician Miles and actress Mackenzie at the $400 level. That's Davis. Mm-hmm. And then a couple clues later, they did Governor Howard and pitcher Dizzy. I I was in like thinking of trumpet players. So Gillespie. Like, Gillespie. Yeah. But he wasn't a pitcher. Why would they say that? <laughs> they got that wrong, but it's not. It's Dean. It's <laughs> yeah. Dizzy Dean. And, and of course, Howard Dean of the, mm-hmm. of the beyond yeah. uh, fame. The loser letter category i thought was it worked well for me and uh fairly well for the contestants that the eight hundred and thousand they missed i did figure out wood used for carpentry loses a letter and becomes a device to record duration that's timber and timer i got stuck on lumber yeah i was like lumber and lumber loom luber luber a family show um <laughs> talking about uh, you know m- mechanics yes and stuff <laughs> daily double number one is just the second pick of the round um at the thousand dollar level of a 20th century fact production chris finds it he's the only one with any money because you know it's the second clue so he got the first one correct so with eight so he's got 800 he can wager up to a thousand so he does and gets the clue, in a 1918 declaration, a readjustment of the frontiers of Italy should be affected. Was 0.9 of this many. That's 14. Woodrow Wilson's 14. 14 points that uh, Kyle did a deep dive on a couple years back. So if you're did. like, if you're like, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, never heard of her. <laughs> I, <laughs> you, can, you can go find out some more about that by right. uh, like scrolling back in uh, way back way back actually 
I'm not seeing all of our um, old episodes on on uh, Apple like I, I do need yeah so. I need to look into that and figure out yeah if, if maybe but, we have reached a limit but yeah know. they still exist there I see them on other like uh, on our on our website and on on Podbean and I haven't gone to check all of the other places where people might get podcasts but it, they still exist mm-hmm. you can find them yes. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is at 7,400, Katie's at 4,600, John's at 3,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are translators, cities and towns of the Bible, an F in opera, F in quotation marks, notable African-Americans, Disney do-overs, and speech of the Dickens. That was fun. Yeah, it was. Did the opera category satisfy? Were there were there errors it, that I missed? It was... It was, I, I thought it was fine. I couldn't remember. I, I also couldn't remember the flower duet, what it was called from. Yeah. It, I don't know. That opera is not, it's fine. They played the little clip and I recognize it as, you know, a thing that I have heard in various mm-hmm. settings. You know, I think it's something that gets used a lot, a lot. Yeah. And I really like when I hear something and have it matched up with what it's like that I recognize and have it matched up with what it's called. Because like, there are a lot of things in the world you can Google, but if it's like the song that I'm hearing in my head right now that goes, right. Like, like, like how do you, how can you like, I have never figured out how to go about identifying that except for, I mean, what you can do is sing it into a voice memo and send it to your friends and ask them if they know, but Hey, what is this? It's mortifying. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't like to do it. You, so. you need to have a certain relationship with people to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and some so. friends are like more than fine with it. Yep. M- many are like, why are you doing this? <laughs> why? Yeah. Anyway, I liked yes. getting a name for that. Yeah. The flower duet. I, I don't know how I feel about the $1,200 clue. Countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo has focused his singing on this high register range. And uh, John got it. At least they gave it to him for falsetto. Like, I, I guess that's not wrong. But there's something I don't know. I don't know. I, I would have to talk with uh, I would have to talk with countertenors about it to see what they really think. Uh, speaking of, I mean, I don't know if Doug Dodson actually like listens to the podcast, but he's a mm-hmm. countertenor. There's something to me that's like, that's not falsetto because it's like bel canto singing. It's, it's opera, mm. it's operatic style in the countertenor range. Yeah. Like the, that register is countertenor. Mm-hmm. It's not something else. So I, I was, I couldn't come up with anything for it. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm wrong about that or not, but yeah. to me, that range is called countertenor because that's what it is. Yeah. So. I feel like the uh, Disney do-overs category was designed for millennials. Yeah. It just seemed to really, really, you know, hit our, you know, our our childhood and awareness of Disney things. Yep. Mm-hmm. Pretty well. Yeah. I mean, classic. 1961, Haley Mills and Haley Mills. 1998, Lindsay Lohan and Lindsay Lohan. It's the parent trap. Mm-hmm. Classic. Yeah, the way we're all still talking about the parrot trap is mm-hmm. unexpected. <laughs> but like it still is coming up regularly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is it's a cultural touchstone. Yes. 
Daily Devil number two is in the notable African-Americans category at the $2,000 level. Pick number five, John finds it. And, you know, up up into this round, John and Katie, they were behind, but they were in it, right? Mm-hmm. And John is just starting to make a move. He's at 6,000. Chris is at 10,200 and Katie's at 4,600. And he wagers 5,000, which I think is a good move. Could even bet it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and gets a clue. Seen here, they show a picture. This legendary blues singer and guitarist from Mississippi got his by name from playing in a creek as a boy. And to me, I thought that clue was too much for a $2,000 clue. But he guessed who is Morton, probably thinking a Jelly Roll Morton. Mm, yeah. Uh, but that's a J- Jelly Roll Morton is not a, not a blues or a guitarist. But that's Muddy Waters. Um, and Daily Double number three is uh, pick number nine at the $1,200 level of translators. And Chris finds this one. He's at 12200 uh to Katie's 4600 and John's 1800 He wagers 7000 and gets the clue. Thomas Hobbes translated this work on the man that having sacked the sacred town of Troy wandered so long at sea. And he gets it correct. It's the Odyssey. Yes, indeed. A book that I have never actually finished. Yeah, same. (laughs) I get into it and then I put it down and never come back to it. Anyway, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Chris has another lock game at 28,000. Katie's at 9,000. John's at 5,400. Final Jeopardy category is seconds in history. And the clue, the fortune, the second ship to land at this harbor, disappointed those already there carrying 35 new residents and not so much as a biscuit cake. John and Katie both guessed what is Jamestown. That is incorrect. John wagered 3601 and Katie wagered 1801. And Chris got it correct with what is Plymouth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And wagered 7221. So he goes up to 35,221. I couldn't decide between Plymouth and Jamestown. I was like, fortune sounds like a Jamestown kind of thing rather than a Plymouth thing. Mm, So I think I would have gone with Jamestown. Yeah, but it would make sense. I mean, if I if I knew on that tape day that like this is airing the week of Thanksgiving, maybe that would push me toward like, oh, it's yeah, probably Plymouth. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that piece of it. Yeah, I went for Plymouth and didn't look back. And then and then uh, when Jamestown came out, I was like, oh, I should have considered that. But um, so that brings us to Thursday. We have the contestants Tarun Narasimhan, a data scientist from San Francisco, California. Megan Burr, a manager of film acquisitions, originally from Guntersville, Alabama, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Ocean City, New Jersey, who at this point has won 13 games and $416,102. The Jeopardy round categories are character actors, 20th century campaign slogans, revenge lit, near the front of the dictionary. They are all before, after. (laughs) Car accessories, and it's a Thanksgiving miracle. That was a fun category to not, like, not call potpourri, I guess. Because <laughs> one was about football, one was about airports, one was about President Buchanan, uh-huh. one was about Home Alone, and one was about Thanksgiving dinner. Yep. So. Yeah. They were united by kind of the, the narrative thread in the, in the clue writing rather than mm-hmm. anything about the content itself. Right. Yeah. I thought Revenge Lit was kind of a, a, a fun theme for a category i expected to see the count of monte cristo and we did 
at the $200 level. And I wasn't mm. really sure what to expect from the rest. And we, we had a, <laughs> we had a pretty wide ranging set of things from the Aeneid to true grit. True grit. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a good category. Mm-hmm. My uh, tournament of champions preparation from three years ago paid off. Cause I remembered that Isabel Allende is a Chilean author. Yes. So thank you. Flashcards. Mm-hmm. One thing stuck. Yay. Um, yeah, uh, we get Daily Double number one in the near the front of the dictionary category at the $600 level. Uh, Chris finds it at pick number 14. He's already up to 8,200. Megan's at zero and Tarun is at negative 1,600. And he wagers 5,000. He could have bet more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could have bet it all. And he if he got it wrong, he'd still be tied for first place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think about that because I was never in a, you know, such a dominant position as that to to be able to bet just like massively. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if that would feel like bad sportsmanship. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I don't know. I don't know what that consideration would be. Like, is there is there an amount that's so much that it's like I'm being rude to the other yeah. players? Uh-huh. I don't know. Anyway, he wagers 5,000. Gets the clue from Latin for proverb. It's a saying that expresses a common observation like a penny saved is a penny earned. And he gets it correct with what is adage. Mm-hmm. And I got stuck on axiom and I was like, but X is after, after. Mm-hmm. How, what, what, what else could it possibly be? Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is at 16,200. Megan is at 1,400 and Drun is out of the hole at 600. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, historical fiction, simply gorges, biology, Stars of Oscar's Best Pictures, Take the Fifth, and Double T Words. Megan and Tarun, props to them for trying to stay in it. Mm-hmm. Chris, I mean, really, this was a spectacular game for him, but Megan and Tarun were still ringing and still attempting, you know, yeah. well past the point where, like, it was mathematically impossible right, to turn for- the game around. Yeah. But they they played, which I mean, mm-hmm. that's what else are you going to do? What else are, are you, you going to do? Yeah. You gonna but stand like, there and mope like, I yeah, mean, maybe <laughs> some people I mean, would, I, think I guess. That, I but. think some people do sort of panic and freeze and, you know, whatever. Um, right. And it happens, you know, uh, sure. but Turin and Megan for, you know, still playing. Um, yeah. But goodness gracious. This yeah. is this is a very, yeah, very good game for Chris. Yeah. Uh, the $2,000 level of double T words in Jane Eyre, Mr. Rochester is not fond of the this of children, a synonym for chatter that also has a double T. Uh, Megan guessed what is nattering, but that's prattling or prattle, which, you know, I must say, I agree with Mr. Rochester. <laughs> children should be seen and not heard. <laughs> which yeah, is, mm-hmm. That definitely is how it goes in my house. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I think um, the amount of child noise that we have had to edit out of the podcast uh, suggests otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I sort of felt for Megan because nattering is a great guess. It fits. It is. It fits with uh, everything that's provided. Unless you have memorized Jane Eyre, mm-hmm. there's not a. If you had both nattering and prattle, or prattling come to mind. I don't think there would be a way to know which one to guess. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You write it trying to like 
narrow it down enough that you don't have to have Jane Eyre memorized and you know you think you've got it and then somebody comes up with natter nattering you're like oh okay okay all right mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I think they try not to they try not to do that kind of thing where where there's yeah. a a second reasonable answer that you know and technically it's pinned right but it's but really not in a way flip. that's really knowable yeah yeah uh, Daily Double number two is in historical fiction at the $2,000 level. And Chris finds it. It's the eighth pick. He has 25400 and wagers 5000 This is another time when he, he could wager it all. Megan's at 200 Tarun's at 600 Yeah. So if he dropped to zero, he would be one clue away from, from the lead again. Right. Um, but he keeps it to 5000 and gets the clue. Min Jin Lee's novel about a Korean immigrant family in Japan is named for this upright Japanese game using small metal balls. Uh, he gets it correct. It's Pachinko, which I read last year. Maybe it's a good one. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a, that novel is great. I really liked it. And Daily Double number three is in the biology category at the $2,000 level. Pick number 19. Chris also finds this one. At this point, he's at 34,000. Megan's mm. at 5,400. Turin's at 200. He wagers 9,000. Gets a clue. In the cell cycle, it follows metaphase. Alphabetically, it comes first. And he gets it correct with what is anaphase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Mm, These scores. Uh, yes. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Chris has a lock with 46,600 uh, to Megan's 5,000 and Tarun's 3,400. The final Jeopardy category is Southern Colleges, and the clue is to aid transport in poorer nations in the 1920s. Grads of this college built makeshift buggies celebrated in their fight song. Tarun correctly respond- responded, what is Georgia Tech? The Ramblin' Wreck from Georgia Tech is the thing to know here, I guess. I guess. He wagered 1601, so... Looking to get above Megan's score. Uh, that lands him at 5,001. Megan missed this one. She tried what is Auburn. She wagered 2,000. That'll drop her down to 3,000. So she'll finish in third with Tarun in second. And Chris uh, got it with what is Georgia Tech and a wager of $25,221, giving him a total for this game of 71821 which That's a lot of money. Yeah. So he is up there in records at this point. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to Friday, when we have the contestants Holly Smith, a writer and editor from Toledo, Ohio, Sam Papua, a graduate student from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and Chris Panulo, a customer success operations manager from Motion City, New Jersey, who's 14-day cash winnings. Now total $487,923. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Let's play sports there. Do the math. A garden party. Whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother. Staying alive. And ah ha 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 with H-A in quotation marks. Let's play sports there was a sports category where you didn't really need to know anything about sports. Nope. They showed you... A picture uh, picture. of a sporting venue and then told you something about the geographic location basically right yep yep yeah this university in provo utah i i wonder yes 
there was um something about Alex Trebek's beloved CFL Hamilton Tiger Cats uh who play at the field named for this donut company so BYU and Tim Hortons respectively you know so like they're mm-hmm. they're they're not sports questions they're geography questions with like a mention of sports right right yeah they're like the lacoave sports questions <laughs> hint of sports somebody said to me that lacroix coconut tastes like sunscreen and now i can't i believe that unsmell it <laughs> i don't i don't drink that yeah i used to like it and now it tastes like sunscreen to me and yeah. now it tastes like sunscreen to all of our listeners too. Sorry, guys. <laughs> You're welcome. Hey, we're doing you a favor. Okay, don't mm-hmm. don't bother with Le Croix. Oh, I like Le Croix. Okay, yeah, but the coconut one tastes like sunscreen to me now. They're better bubblies. Anyway, that's true. That's true. I'm a spindrift gal myself, oh. which is not really properly seltzer per se because it has like enough juice in there that the calorie content is not zero you know yeah so so but, well, yeah, yeah i get that makes sense what is your sparkling water of choice personally i really enjoy the kirkland brand okay from costco hmm. i think it's great i think it's better than most of the other things i've had hmm. my wife really likes bubbly oh, okay so that's, that's like the the have. what with the weird spelling right yes that, yes the, the buble one yes i like his christmas album (laughs) yeah it's fine yeah um all right (laughs) back to jeopardy they had a bit of struggle with the math category they didn't get the 800 or the or the thousand but that is hard to do it's hard to do math on stage in front of the camera Though I did think the $1,000 clue, it's the value of Y at the point where a graph of the equation Y equals X plus one crosses the Y axis. That's a bit wordy. So if you're trying to like parse the language, I could see how that would be difficult. But it's like, they're just asking for like solve for Y. And it's like, well, you know, if if X equals zero, then I felt like that one was pretty easy. Right. It took me a minute to like recall that crosses the Y axis means set x equal to zero yeah and i had to picture the graph and then be like Mm -hmm. oh right that's what that means so i don't know that i would have if i were on the stage i don't know if i would have sort of had that at my fingertips in order to attempt to to ring in yeah and i I mean i realize i also work with high schoolers so i am often talking to them about algebra that they are doing Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I appreciated Ken's commentary at the $800 level. Uh, it's 12% of 75. Chris rang in and then got stuck trying to calculate it in his head and ended up saying, what is eight? Uh, it's actually nine. And Ken said, it's easier to do 75% of 12, which is nine, which is, which is right. And like, mm-hmm. also like reminded us all how to do that kind of math problem. I mean, also you can, you know, do the 12% of 75, but right. that you can do it either way was, yeah. you know, <laughs> took us all back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he just had it though. He was just yeah. ready. Uh-huh. Daily double number one is actually the very first pick of the round. It's in that let's play sports there category that we were just 
chatting about at the thousand dollar level. Chris finds it, he wagers a thousand, you know, because everyone's at zero. So thousand is the maximum. And he gets the clue sight of a brief 1983 coup. This West Indies Isle of Spice hosted 2007 World Cup games at its national cricket stadium. 1983 coup and West Indies Isle of Spice lead him to the correct response, which is Grenada. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Chris is at 7,400, Sam at 2,800, Holly at 2,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are only half the battle, two word book titles, our flag means, selling it, some of that jazz, and unfriend. I was wondering where they were going to go with the our flag means like mm-hmm. whether there would be what the next category would be after this. Yeah, I, flag means. I was hoping for a pun, like an our flag I, means death pun. I was too. And then, and then there wasn't. Yeah. Which almost is, I don't know, more satisfying to subvert the trope. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, that jazz category felt, it felt really like cosmic to me because the $400 and $1,600 Clue are all tunes that I have worked with my jazz band on this semester. Mm. Oh, nice. Um, But really, that just shows that they're like, you know, standards and classics. Yeah. If I'm, you know, teaching high schoolers about jazz, this is what we're going to look at. $400 Clue, despite the sunny title and lyric about easy living, this 1934 Gershwin classic feels melancholy thanks to its minor key. That's Summertime from Porgy and Bess. Uh, the kids loved playing that. They loved it. Like mm-hmm. I was, sh- I was surprised. These you know, high schoolers are like, yeah, we we really like this. Uh, we're playing my favorite things for the holiday concert because it is a, it has become a Christmas time tune, I guess. So we're, I would say we're doing the Coltrane version, but the Coltrane version is literally just the tune, and then he solos for like ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And we did take the A train and we have looked at take five. We have not performed take five. That's the title of the Dave Brubeck Quartet Classic reflecting its unusual five, four time signature. The tune itself is not terribly challenging to get, mm-hmm. but it is surprisingly difficult to improvise in five, four time. Mm, yeah. Because you usually don't feel music in five. Right. If I remember correctly, I ushered at a Dave Brubeck concert way back really pretty sure Ooh, that would have been awesome yeah i would have loved that i loved Mm -hmm. it back and paul desmond i love the the day brubeck quartet is just awesome Mm -hmm. yeah i was an usher at the theater at my college which was a very cool i mean you know you had to work and like you know Mm -hmm. for things that everybody wanted to see everybody wanted the uh the ushering roles that were inside the theater and for the things that we were all sick of uh, everyone wanted the ushering rules that were outside the theater. So, you know, sometimes you like got really excited about like, you know, whatever, and then got stuck out at the ticket ticketing area or whatever. But, but I, I'm pretty sure I pretty sure I was in there for Dave Brubeck. Nice. Yeah. Man, that would have been cool. Yeah. I'd have loved to see Dave Brubeck. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a triple stumper in the half the battle category, the $1,200 level. The Germans were advancing on Paris in September, 1914 when general Joffre turned their flank winning the first battle of this river. Chris guess what's the Rhine. Um, that's the Marne. And mm-hmm. we just don't know our world war one battles. Yeah. Right. Like we gotta, <laughs> you should, you should get to know them. And a lot of them are French, you know, names because it was all fought in France. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like the whole, <laughs> the whole war basically. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there. Were, I, I shouldn't say that. There was the Italian front, and you know, every everywhere else. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Ken gave a bad ruling and had to correct himself at the twelve hundred dollar level of selling it. The clue was in twenty fourteen. Arby's launched this slogan. Sam rang in and said, "What is we have the meat?" Uh, Ken said, "That's correct. No, that sorry, that's not correct." And then Holly got the rebound, which was we have the meats plural. Meat. Yeah. Yeah. Ken's really good about being quick to respond, not to wade into the who is better at hosting discussion, but it does trip me up sometimes how long Mayim often takes to rule a response, correct or incorrect. Mm -hmm. And Ken is much more snappy with it. But that does lead to something like this, where the very end of the response is the thing that you need to be listening for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like, him having to reverse himself gives the other contestants a clue that Sam was super, super close. Right. I mean, obviously Holly knew it. Like, yeah, it, it's not like she, she was just like, it's not hmm, like she rang in and tried, what... like, let's try. We've got the meat. Right. Like, um, I wonder what it could be. Like, yeah, she, she clearly knew it. So I don't think that particular one was an instance, but, but yes, I, I do know what you say, what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Daily double number two is in the two word book titles at the, $800 level, pick number 10, and Holly finds it. She's at 5,600. Chris is at 15,800. Uh, and Sam is at 2,800. And she bets it all, which is the right call. She's got to do it to be able to get back in the game. Gets the clue. Pitcher Jim Bouton issued 50 walks in the 1969 season. So 50 times he heard this title of his season diary. Uh, Holly has nothing. And the correct response is, what is ball for? Mm-hmm. Ken made a quip about that. Maybe she was not hoping for a sports memoir. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't fair enough. Her. That is, yeah. that is also how I would feel. Yep. And daily double number three is an unfriend also at the $800 level. And Chris finds this one. He has pretty much a runaway game at this point with 22,600. He wagers 3000 of it and gets the clue. One who used the same stream as another led to this word for a competitor and he gets it correct. It's rival. Yeah. That was which impressive. Apparently shares an etymological root with the word river. Which yeah. I had, I had no idea. If he just kind of worked that out, that was very impressive. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Chris does have a lock game at 26,400. Sam is at 5,200. Holly's at 3,600. Final jeopardy category is States on the census and the clue The 2020 census gave Montana a second U.S. House seat. Its most populous county, this one that attracts tourists, grew 11%. Holly guessed what is Bozeman. That is incorrect and wagered everything but a dollar. Sam wrote what is Flathead, which I do not know, but maybe Sam does know. Uh, And wagered 2200. That's also incorrect. Chris got it correct with what is Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And wager twelve thousand two hundred and one. I was not aware that Yellowstone was a county. Yeah, um, I don't think I was either. I got to, I got to Custer. I guessed Custer, thinking of Little Bighorn, and perhaps it was named Custer County or something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a tricky one. Tricky one, but a good pull. And Chris crosses the half a million mark with that mm-hmm. win in winnings. So that's the end of the week. And that brings us to 
the point in the show where we remind you that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there to check out a bit of exclusive content. We put the quiz questions up and uh, you can support us financially there. You can uh, give us a, a monthly donation to help support the podcast, help offset the cost, um, you know, domain fees, hosting fees, that kind of thing, potentially replacing, you know, uh, technology if we, if we so need it. And um, yeah, patreon.com slash potent potables. However, we also want to make sure that we do our due diligence in reminding you that there are more important things in this world. And so we encourage you to check out the show notes where we have some links to some uh, important causes that we believe are worthwhile. Um, And of course, recently we have been highlighting abortionfunds.org, among others. Emily. Yes, Kyle. What are your deep dive guesses? Are we talking about The Hague? We are not. It was up there, though. I even like looked yeah. into it, but it's not what I settled on. Well, all right. Are we talking about the Six Day War? We are not. Okay. Also an interesting topic, though. I'm on the fence about this third guess. They're really opposite directions. The flower duet. It is not the flower duet. All right. We're going back to the Monday game amidst Daily Dublin writers and their works. Left unfinished at his death Juneteenth, his second novel was published in 1999. That was, uh, Sam missed it. He guessed who was Baldwin. It's Ralph Ellison. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, before this week, knew that Ralph Ellison wrote Invisible Man. And that was it. I even had to continuously remind myself, okay, was Ellison was American, right? And Camus is not. Because I have, I knew nothing about any of them. So I kept mixing people up because I didn't really have anything other than the titles. So we're going to talk about Ralph Ellison and uh, yeah. Awesome. A little bit about him. Mention his works. Uh, the, I'm, I'm going to say this and this, this isn't like a criticism because obviously it's super important and like, you know, impactful work, but he does not have a particularly large uh, output mm-hmm. um, as we learned, you know, as at least I learned this week, he only had one novel uh, that was published in his lifetime. Um, and he has a collection of other writings. He he worked in literary review and, and even some songwriting and, and stuff like that. So he, you know, he was working continuously and making a living writing. It's just as far as like these sort of like monumental works that you can point at individually. He doesn't have terribly many. So anyway... Ralph Ellison, Ralph Waldo Ellison, huh. was uh, born on March 1st, 1913 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, to Louis Alfred Ellison and Ida Millsap. Uh, he was the second of three sons. The firstborn, Alfred, died in infancy, and his younger brother, Herbert Maurice, was born in 1916. Uh, his father, Louis, was a small business owner and a construction foreman, and he died in 1916 uh, after an 100-pound ice block dropped while being loaded into a hopper and shattered, and shards of it pierced his abdomen, and he what? underwent he underwent surgery to like to kind of like fix the wounds, but the surgery was unsuccessful, and he died. 
Like that is horrific. Yeah. New fear unlocked. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, Lewis loved literature and loved his kids. And uh, later on, Ralph discovered or like, you know, found out that his father had hoped he would grow up to be a poet. In 1921, uh, his mother uh, moved her and her children to Gary, Indiana to live with her brother. She felt that Ralph and his brother would have a better chance of reaching manhood if they grew up in the North, but she was unable to find a job and they returned to Oklahoma. Uh, he, you know, worked various jobs as a young man, busboy, shoeshine boy, dentist assistant. He also received free lessons playing trumpet and alto saxophone from a neighborhood friend. And he would even go, go on to become the school bandmaster. Uh, his mother remarried three times after Lewis died. However, their home life was not particularly stable. Ralph played on the football team at Frederick A. Douglas High School in Oklahoma City. He graduated in 1931. Uh, he worked for a year with uh, un- making enough money to make a down payment on a trumpet. And he used it to play with local musicians, took further lessons. And from there, he applied to the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, on his second application, he was admitted in 1933 because they needed a trumpet player in their orchestra. So he hoboed his way out there, hopping freight trains to Alabama. However, he was quickly kind of disillusioned by the uh, class conscious culture at Tuskegee, mm. uh, finding that it would, you know, it really didn't seem any different than what he'd heard about white institutions. And so he was kind of an outsider, right? He was coming in, he was very poor. He couldn't even afford, you know, a train ticket to get there. Uh, and so he gave him a kind of a, he, he believed that it sharpened his satirical lens. Mm-hmm. The critic Hilton Owls believes that standing apart from the university's air of sanctimonious negritude enabled him to write about it. Uh, and in Invisible Man, uh, he looks back with a, with scorn and despair on the sniveling ethos that ruled at Tuskegee. Um, however, the music department was perhaps the most renowned department at the school, uh, headed by composer William L. Dawson, who I'm not doing a deep dive on, but an important figure in, especially in African-American music. Uh, and he was guided by the department's piano instructor, Hazel Harrison, who was the first fully American trained musician to appear with the European orchestra. Hmm. He spent his free time in the library reading modernist classics, particularly impactful was T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And in 1934, he began to work as a desk clerk at the university library where he was introduced to James Joyce and Gertrude Stein, or at least the works thereof, not the actual people. And he was uh, particularly influenced by English teacher Morteza Dresel Sprague. He later dedicated his essay collection, Shadow and Act, to Sprague. And he was kind of the one who first planted the idea in Ellison's mind of being a writer, you know. Um, of pursuing that literary life. Uh, He remained at Tuskegee until 1936, but left before completing the requirements for a degree. He then moved to New York desiring to study sculpture. He was, uh, he was just kind of, I guess he had like, you know, Renaissance man kind of interests. Uh, He moved to New York in 1936, found lodging at the YMCA in Harlem on 135th street. And uh, he met Langston Hughes, who introduced him to the black literary establishment with communist sympathies. Um, he also met several other people who had influenced his later life, like uh, Ramara Bearden and Richard Wright, 
Ellison wrote a book review for Wright, and Wright then encouraged him to pursue fiction as a career. And he did with his first published story being Jaime's Bull, which was inspired by his um, his train hoboing on his way to Tuskegee. From 37 to 44, Ellison had over 20 book reviews, as well as short stories and articles published in magazines such as New Challenge and The New Masses, which are Marxist magazines. Richard Wright was openly associated with the Communist Party, and Ellison was obviously publishing and editing for communist publications, but he kept his affiliation quieter. Uh, however, both Wright and Ellison lost their faith in the Communist Party during World War I when they felt that the party had betrayed African Americans and replaced Marxist class politics with social reformism. That comes up later in his works as well. Um, kind of part, a, a big influence for Invisible Man, in fact, was feeling betrayed by the Communist Party. Hmm. Uh, in 1938, he met Rosa Araminta Poindexter, who was two years older than him. They were married in 1938. Rosa was a stage actress. She continued her career after their marriage. And uh, in 1941, he had a brief affair with uh, a writer named Sonora Babb. And after he told his wife about it, they uh, divorced in 1943. Uh, Ellison was classed 1A at the start of World War II by the Selective Service, but uh, he was not actually drafted. By the end of the war, he had enlisted in the U.S. Merchant Marine, so he served for a few years there. In 1946, he married Fanny McConnell, who was a uh, scholarship graduate of the University of Iowa and the founder of the Negro People's Theater in Chicago and was a writer for the Chicago Defender. So Fanny McConnell sounds like a pretty cool person who we could look into. Uh, the Chicago Defender, by the way, is uh, an African-American newspaper. It is now online uh, out of Chicago, one of the very most important uh, black newspapers hmm. in like U.S. history. She supported Ellison while he wrote Invisible Man, you know, over a number of years. In 1946, Ellison composed and wrote the lyrics for at least two songs, Flirty and It Would Only Hurt Me If I Knew. He also wrote some book reviews, but spent most of his time working on Invisible Man. Fanny also helped him uh, type out his longhand text and helped him in editing it as it went through. And then Invisible Man was published in 1952, exploring the theme of a person's search for their identity and place in society, as seen from the perspective of the first person narrator who is an unnamed African-American man. Uh, he starts out in the Deep South, then is in New York in the 1930s, obviously somewhat autobiographical. Mm -hmm. Unlike other black writers of the time, like Richard Wright and James Baldwin, Ellison's characters are dispassionate, educated, articulate, and self-aware. And the, the book explores different varieties of racism from Northern and Southern people. And the narrator is invisible in a figurative sense in that people refuse to see him. Mm -hmm. It also deals with subjects such as incest and communism, which of course are on the same level. Invisible Man was extremely, extremely impactful. Uh, it won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1953. Um, it got him into the high echelons of the American literary establishment. Uh, he was ad admitted to the Academy, American Academy of Arts and Letters. He received two president's medals, one from Lyndon Johnson and one from Ronald Reagan, as well as a state medal from France. He was the first African-American admitted to the Century Association, which was a private social arts and dining club in New York. He was awarded an honorary doctorate from Harvard, and it led to 
travels to Europe with lectures and and teachings and stuff. Um, he wrote some essays throughout his travels. He lived in Rome for a while uh, in 1955. He developed a friendship with uh, Robert Penn Warren and was one of the people that Warren interviewed for his uh, work, Who Speaks for the Negro, which was a collection of interviews conducted with civil rights uh, activists. Ellison continued to receive major awards for his work while writing essays about the black experience and his love for jazz music. In 1984, he received New York City College's Langston Hughes Medal and... Oklahoma City honored him with the dedication of the Ralph Waldo Ellison Library. In 1992, he was awarded a Special Achievement Award from the Anisfield Wolf Book Awards. And uh, he also, for a time, taught at Bard College, Rutgers University, the University of Chicago, and New York University. Later in his years, um, he was recruited to be a consultant for the Hudson Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. It is at least now a conservative think tank. Mm -hmm. In 1964, he published Shadow and Act, which is a collection of essays. And that was also when he began to teach at Bard College and Rutgers, working on his second novel. Also during that year, the a book week poll of 200 critics, authors, and editors proclaimed Invisible Man to be the most important novel since World War II. Uh, in 1967, he experienced a major house fire at his summer home in Plainfield, Massachusetts, which burned more than 300 pages of his manuscript for his second novel. Uh, he was a perfectionist regarding the art of the novel and uh, pretty upset about this. He even said that while he accepted his National Book Award for Invisible Man, he felt that he had made an attempt at a major novel and was unsatisfied with the book. Hmm. So for Juneteenth, Ellison actually wrote more than 2,000 pages, but never finished it. Oof. Yeah. And uh, he died on April 16th, 1994 of pancreatic cancer and was interred in a crypt at Trinity Church in Washington Heights. So I mentioned Invisible Man, Juneteenth, Shadow and Act. There's some other, uh, a few other works, um, Flying Home and Other Stories is a collection of short stories. Juneteenth was collected after his death and compiled as a 368-page condensation of the material from the more than 2,000 pages that I mentioned. Biographer, friend of Ellison, and literary executor John F. Callahan created the novel, and he edited the way that he believed Ellison would have wanted it. A fuller version of the manuscript was published in 2010, and that was titled Three Days Before the Shooting. Uh, Juneteenth was published in uh, 1999. Mm -hmm. And that's that's pretty much what I have for Ralph Waldo Ellison. Nice. Not too long, but um, certainly more than I knew. And now I have a lot more context for it. Yeah, definitely. I read Invisible Man at, at some point, but didn't know uh, a whole lot actually about Ellison's you know life and background. Um, so this has been this has been helpful and interesting. So thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. All right. So I mentioned a couple times the National Book Award that uh, Invisible Man received. So all of my quiz questions are based on at the very least, the title of a book that has won the National Book Award. Okay. Are you ready? Uh, yes, I am. All right. Absolutely ready. 
Question one. Bellerophon is the third and final novella in the National Book Award winner for fiction from 1973 by John Barth. Bellerophon is the Greek hero who tamed Pegasus and slew what mythical beast, which is also the title of the work, a novel composed of three loosely based stories. Okay. I'm getting lost in the syntax, but I think that who you're looking for here is Perseus. I'll re reword it because I'm leading you off. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, let's oh, see is can... it? It's slew what mythical beast? Yes, I'm asking that... for the mythical beast. Ah, uh, okay. Is it uh, Medusa? Is it Medusa? I'm hoping it's it Medusa. is. I'm going. It is Medusa. not Medusa. Ah, uh, darn it. Okay. It is Chimera. Oh, okay. So Bellerophon in Greek uh, mythology slew the Chimera riding Pegasus. Um, uh, all right, I'm sorry. I got my, I got my Greek mythology mixed up. That you don't have to apologize to me. My question was <laughs> poorly worded. Um, the clue there, like obviously, if you knew Bellerophon, then you would get that. But uh, tried to work in the clue about three loosely based but connected stories. The Chimera mm-hmm. has a goat head, oh, a snake head, and a lion. Yeah, okay, head, gotcha. Or or is comprised of those three beasts mm-hmm. to, in some way, depending on you know what story you're looking at. So I see. Okay. Uh, question two. The 1965 fiction winner by Saul Bellow is titled after the main character's last name. That name is shared by a German film director, actor, and writer who has such directing credits as 1972's Aguirre. Aguirre? Aguirre. I don't know. The Wrath of God. I don't know. 1974's Heart of Glass, 2005's Grizzly Man, and most recently appeared as an actor playing the role of the client in episode one of the first season of The Mandalorian. What is that last name? That's Werner Herzog. Herzog. It (laughs) is indeed Herzog. Yes. There's this social media account called Sad Beige, which mocks the uh, kind of neutral beige aesthetic in children's like clothes, toys, and furnishings. And the creator mm. does everything in the character of Werner Herzog, like nice. an imitation of his voice. It's hilarious. So people should go find it. I bet that would be good. He has a good voice. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, question three. Thomas Pynchon's Gravity Rainbow won the award in 1974. Gravity is one of the four fundamental forces in physics. For three points each, or ten if you get all three, what are the other fundamental forces? Oh, no. Um, I know that I know I can them. give you a little hint. Yeah, a little hint would be fine. Two of them are antonyms and also adjectives. Okay. Uh, and I don't know how to give... And the other one is electromagnetism. The other one is electromagnetism. Yes, okay, you got I think, one. I think the two that you're hinting me toward are strong and weak. They are strong and weak. Yes. Yeah. The strong force, the weak force, and electromagnetism. They came to me right away, and then I was like, mm, maybe that's something else. No, you got it. Yay. Nice. Nice, nice. All right. Uh, you're at 20 points. Question four. The titles of the most recent fiction winner by Tess Gunty and the 1982 winner by John Updike both feature what lagomorph? Rabbit. It is indeed rabbit. Mm-hmm. The 2000. 22 winner is the rabbit hutch i believe and the 1982 winner is rabbit is rich yes which is the third of the rabbit books 
Yes. I hated it. <laughs> I haven't read it. So. Uh, I have. I hadn't read or heard of uh, the 2022 winner um, because I put a few recent uh National Book Award winners on my 2022 reading list, but I made it in 2021. So nobody had won the 2022 award at that point. That's a good reason. All right. Uh, Yes. And I just like the word lagomorph. Yeah. No, that's a good word. First two things that are rabbit like hares, rabbits, pikas. Mm -hmm. All right. Question five William Gaddis's JR won the award in 1976. J.R. Ewing of Ewing Oil is a main character who is mysteriously shot on what primetime soap opera that ran from 1978 to 1991? What was that called? Was it Dallas? Dallas is what's coming to me. I'm going with Dallas. It is indeed Dallas. (laughs) And uh, turns out J.R. is the only character to have appeared in every episode. Hmm. Uh, Apparently he was not intended to be the main character from the start, but... uh, Ended up being that way. All right. You are at 40 points going into the final. And my category title is Don't Overthink It. Okay. I guess I'll wager 40. Okay. Although I overthink everything. So we'll see. The 1950 award for nonfiction went to Ralph Rusk for his work, The Life of What? American Writer and Transcendentalist. I'm going to not overthink it, and I'm going to say Ralph Waldo Emerson. It is indeed Ralph Waldo Emerson. I didn't overthink it. Very nice. Yay! You followed the instructions. (laughs) You did it. Nice. Yeah, I figured, I mean, I knew that one would be pretty easy, but also I just, I saw that title and I was like, wow, I I have to include it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he was named after Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yeah. You got, I got to. So mm-hmm. yeah, you very nice. To. 80 points. Well done. Woo-hoo. Um, well, this has been delightful as always. So thank you. Mm-hmm. And thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave a rating or review. Um, it helps us out with the algorithm. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potent potables. And if you have friends who are Jeopardy fans, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with another oh, week. No, we oh, we actually won't. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we will not be back next week. Emily and I are both traveling, so we are taking a week off of the pod. Um, I hope you all can find some way to muddle through. It'll be a struggle. A week without us because we've definitely never done that before. <laughs> yeah. So we will be back in two weeks mm-hmm. with more Jeopardy. That's right. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.